if you have a military background, if you're you know, firefighter, EMS, police, rebuke and the process of rebuke is actually kind of integral to those systems. But for many of us, we're not familiar with what rebuke can look like, especially when we consider it spiritually. Why is God rebuking Job? What has Job done? What is, what is happening here? We're going to get into that in just a moment. But first of all, I want to invite us to consider that our construct around this idea of rebuke actually is too simplistic. For most of us, we think of the word rebuke, and we think of paternalism, or, you know, that's authoritarian, that can kind of lead to abuse and that kind of thing. I want to propose, and I believe the scriptures really point to this, that God's rebuke of people he loves is good, and it changes us, and it leads to transformation. Case in point, when I was in seminary, uh, I had the opportunity to serve as an intern in a chaplaincy program. So if you've ever been to a hospital, and I hope many of you haven't, except to have babies, uh, you can call upon the chaplain services at most hospitals to come. And it was a wonderful opportunity for me to learn how to be with people in crisis, how to pray with them, how to care for staff, especially. I found after a period of time at the hospital that about half my job was caring for patients and half of it was caring for staff. So I worked at a hospital in Lakewood called St. Clair's. It's a 108-bed community hospital. It's tiny by comparison to the hospitals around here. It's not nearly the size of an Overlake or an Evergreen, but it was a wonderful experience for me. And one day, I was working in the emergency room, or as we now call it, the emergency department, the ED. And it kind of looked like this. And again, I hope many of you have not had the chance to go to an ED, but if you have, or if one of your kids has slipped and fallen or something happened and you got there, you know the ED is not a calm place. It is a very busy place. There's people coming and going. There are these rooms that you kind of go into and the glass door closes behind you and nurses and doctors come and take care of you. And so I actually didn't spend a whole lot of time in the ED when I was a chaplain intern because it was just so chaotic. Like I could go in there and say hi to people and check in with folks, but basically like I needed to get in and get out. It was about a 10 bedroom emergency department and it was almost always full. Well, one day I found myself in there and I was talking to a patient and I don't even remember why this person came in. I actually can't picture them in my memory, which shows you how long ago it was. But I remember having a really substantial conversation with them, like a really good spiritual conversation where I felt like I was encouraging them, I was doing my job. And then all of a sudden I heard this knock, knock at the glass door. And I didn't really turn around, which is unlike me. Like I was really focused on this person, the patient in front of me. And I heard someone say, hey, can I have a minute with this patient? And I didn't look, and I did this. Hold on just a sec. Like, I didn't look behind me, and I put, I, I did this. I put the finger, not the finger, a finger, to the person, and I said, I'll be with you in just a moment. Didn't look. That hardly ever happens to me, but I did it. And then I continued my conversation with the patient, prayed with them, and then I left. And when I walked out of the room, I saw a gentleman kind of standing over by the nurse's station who clearly was waiting to go into the room, and I said, hey, I'm done now. And I didn't know him. I'd never seen him before. But I noticed he was wearing a red badge. And I was relatively new at the hospital, so I knew that the different color badges meant different things. Didn't think much of it, went on my way. I went and talked with my supervisor after that. Told her about the interaction I'd had with the patient in the emergency room. And she said, hold on a sec, that man that came in and wanted to talk to the patient, you, you shouldn't have done that. What color badge was he wearing? And I said, I think it was a red badge. And she went, that was the emergency room doctor. That was the physician in charge of the entire department that day. You needed to get out of his way. And I went, oh, man, I had no idea. Okay, I'm sorry, I'll go fix it. 
But before I could even get down to the ED, the emergency doctor found me. And he said, hey, look, he was actually very kind. He said, I know you're new. I know you probably didn't know who I was. You can't do that. You can't do that, subtext, you punk kid. You can't do that. And he explained to me that basically, when you are in the emergency room, if a doc, a nurse, somebody needs to come in, it is a matter of life and death. Like my delaying him could have resulted in someone really getting hurt or really possibly losing their life. And it was a rebuke that he offered to me. And he wasn't mean, and he wasn't biting or sarcastic. He had every right to be. But again, in our culture, we tend to think of rebuke as you're only in trouble and this is only going to work out bad for you. But the rebuke that that doc offered me is not all that different from the rebuke that God offers to Job. It wasn't fun in the moment. Like, I can remember my feelings in that moment. I felt ashamed. I felt my face flush. Like, ugh, oh, I can't believe I messed up so badly. But it was powerful. It was transformative for me. Every time I've ever been into a hospital ever since, I think about the fact that when someone whose job it is to care for that patient, when they show up, I need to get out of the way. Like, I need to sort of migrate into my corner, and then I can come back in a little while. When God rebukes Job, God has a picture in his mind, and he has it for us too, an outcome that Job could not imagine. And he has that for you, and he has that for me. And what we cannot do, what we must not do, is script how that's going to look. You and I cannot say to God, God, I really need you to work on this part of my life. Would you correct me in this way? Can I draw you a map about how I need to get better at this? Or can I show you just exactly what I need a little bit of help with? We can ask God, certainly. But to be prescriptive presumes that we can understand the mind of God, and that is one of the greatest errors that Job makes. So in today's sermon, we're going to go through five different headings. I promise they'll be brief. And we're going to catch up, kind of set the context for where we've been. I know for many of you, you're like, you guys are preaching through Job. This is a heavy sermon series. Okay. I'm going to try to catch you up on this. We're going to talk about how Job basically says to God, I rest my case. He's been making a legal argument, and so he rests his case. We're going to talk about God's rebuke. And then Job starts backpedaling, which we got to look at. And then we're going to talk about what we're really after. And we're going to have a time where we can reflect at the end of our service. So let's catch up just a little bit. We are in a book called what, class? Job. It's about a man named Job. Most people know the book of Job as a treatise on suffering, which it is. But one thing we talked about last week was suffering is the top level of the study of the book of Job. What's underneath that, what the authors are really getting at when they present the story of this man, is to draw God's people into an understanding of who God is, particularly his sovereignty and his power. So Job begins by introducing us to this character, this person, Job. He is recognized by all in his community as faithful and prosperous. He is good at his job. He has 10 children, which is a mark of high prosperity at the time. I think it would be a mark of punishment now, but that's okay. He is in a great place in life. And then he loses everything, everything. He loses his ability to earn money. He loses his job and his livelihood. He loses all of his livestock. He loses his home, the place that he felt comfortable in and belonged in. It goes away. It actually collapses. It's knocked over by a strong wind. And he loses his children. All ten children are gone. 
And I know I joked about that a moment ago, but it is no joking matter. He loses those people dearest to him. And so his friends come to comfort him, and as we saw earlier in our study, they actually do a pretty good job for a little while, and then the friends' advice and their counsel to him just falls off a cliff. Because what they start doing is telling Job that he is somehow responsible for his suffering and he has to fix it. We talked about how it's kind of like karma, this idea of temporal retribution. If you do something good, God will give you something good. If you do something bad, God will give you something bad. And if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know it is not that simple. It is not that simple. And Job basically proclaims all along, this is, ver- this is chapters 3 through 37 of the book of Job. It's a series of dialogues. Job says, I'm innocent. And his friends say, oh, really? And Job says, no, really, I'm innocent. And his friends say, no, you're not, because this bad stuff keeps happening to you. And Job says, please stop, you're killing me. And they say, we got to keep torturing you. It's truly remarkable. And where we are now, where we arrive today, Job is kind of at his wit's end. He starts to become arrogant because he's getting the tar knocked out of him by his buddies. He doesn't have a pathway through this. Even though he's maintained his innocence, he can't see where this is going. And he believes that God will rescue him, but he can't see it. Have you been in that place where you have faced tremendous suffering, huge challenges, you don't know what to do, you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting? It is not easy to wait. It's especially not easy for the Americans here, for Western people. We don't like waiting, but Job is in the midst of that, and it's taking its toll on him. So now we, can, we turn to the next heading where we talk about Job resting his case. I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 31, even though I know we're preaching on chapter 38. 31 is where Job summarizes his argument. He's been pushing back against God, and now he finally starts to get out the big guns. He's loaded for bear. Here's what Job says to Almighty God. If only someone would listen to me. Look, I will sign my name to my defense. God, if you write out in front of me what I have done wrong, I will sign my name on it. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. I would wear it like a crown. For I would tell him exactly what I have done. I would come before him like a prince. In context, this reeks of arrogance. Job says to God, and this is a reasonable question, God, tell me what I've done wrong. If my friends are right and I'm suffering because I've done something wrong, just tell me what I've done wrong. And this is a cornerstone of the American legal system. You can't be brought up on charges you don't know about. This is how totalitarian governments function, is you are thrown in jail and you never know why. But we don't do that here. Job is asking for something that is a reasonable request. Tell me why I'm suffering. What did I do wrong? But as we'll find out later, that question doesn't go deep enough. And it's reasonable to ask it. This line here in the bottom might sound a little confusing. I would come before him like a prince. Little historical context. In the ancient Near East, kings, rulers over different countries or nation states or fiefdoms, they were not only responsible for governance and rule in that regard, they were also responsible for ruling over the judicial aspects of that country. So we see this in the Old Testament, right? When Moses is appointed judge over the people of Israel, he's given judicial authority over them. They bring cases to him. He kind of sits on that and decides what justice is going to look like. By the way, the Queen of England has to do this too, right? She's head of state. She's head of the church. Like, don't get, I don't want that many hats. Please don't give me that much responsibility. Like, no, thank you. 
And so when Job says, I'm going to argue this like a prince, there was a clause, if you will, in those agreements between kings and their servants where the king's family, the princes and princesses, could come before the king and argue their case if they were wrongly accused. So nobody else got to argue before the king, but if you were a prince, if you were part of the royal throne, you could say, hey, king, you got this wrong. Let me come and argue with you about this. And because the king was your dad, because the king was a family member on the same level as you and in a regard, you could do that. You can't put God at the same level. This is where Job makes a major, major mistake. Now, we know that God has come, with, come to be with us, one of us, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know that. But this is before the person and work of Jesus Christ comes in the fullness that we now know him in. And so Job is basically saying to God, hey, God, listen, you're the king, I'm a prince, like, let's talk. You know, just you and me, man to man. Like, let's get down on this. Let's make an agreement here. And God is saying, oh, no. It doesn't work like that. You and I are not on the same level. And this is one of those challenges within the Christian faith, the Orthodox faith, the faith that the Bible proclaims, where is God with us and for us? Yes, absolutely. We, we heard about that in the call to worship. He rescues us because He delights in us. And He is not like us. He is so other and beyond and awesome and powerful. And it is so hard for us to grasp that because we're practical people. We want to know what does it mean in my life. And we want to be able to have this personal relationship with God, which through Jesus Christ we can have. And yet God is other. God is not like you and me. If you travel to some of the most majestic cathedrals and spaces of worship around the world, you are drawn into this sense of the otherness of God, of how powerful and majestic God is because the space is designed to proclaim that. It's one of the reasons I love our space here because it draws me in. It draws us into worship in the presence of Almighty God. But God is not like us, friends. In the Old Testament, Moses asks to see God. Remember this? And God says, I'm only going to show you a little bit of myself and it's going to blow you away. And Moses sees a tiny glimpse of it and what happens to him? He comes down the mountain, he sees his friends and his face is glowing. He is physically utterly changed by just being in the presence of God. This is why Job's argument doesn't work. He is losing his grip on the almighty, awe-inspiring power of God. And God knows this before Job knows this. And so now we need to talk about how God rebukes Job. This is in chapter 38, verse 1. It was read for us a moment ago. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. We'll come back to the whirlwind word in just a moment. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? God enters Job's space. He shows up to talk to Job. And the text tells us from the whirlwind. What does that mean? That Hebrew word for whirlwind is actually the same word that is used to refer to a storm or a tempest, something chaotic. If you look at the book of Jonah, this is the word that is used to describe the storms that knock Jonah and his friends around in the boat. Remember this? This is the chaos that descends upon them and disorients them. This is the chaos into which Job gets to confront his accuser, God. Do you think he was a little frightened? Do you think he was a little, okay, what have I asked for? Oh my goodness. Let me just offer this as a word of encouragement. When we face chaos, 
we often think it's our fault. What if the chaos that you are facing in your life right now, whatever form it may be, is actually God showing up to meet with you, to draw your attention? Think about the last time you used that phrase, man, this is so chaotic. Maybe you looked at your email inbox and just went, oof, I can't look at that right now. Maybe you found your children destroying the playroom yet again, even though it's a playroom and they're supposed to destroy it. You looked at it and you went, oh, this is just chaos. God uses the chaos to draw Job's attention to himself. Maybe the next time you encounter chaos in your life, we look at it just a little bit different and we say, what if God is drawing me to himself? I wish I'd had that attitude towards some of the chaotic seasons in my life. Now, God has got his attention. He's focused. Now he's going to start unloading on him. And this is where the message translation captures, I think, some of the snarkiness and some of the... um, humor, if you will, that God presents this with, and we'll explain a little bit about why God can get away with this. Where were you? This is God talking to Job. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Hey, Job, remember when you were with me at creation? Oh, that's right. You weren't with me at creation. Okay, well, we'll move on. Who decided on the size of the earth? Certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? Who decided the distance of the earth from the sun so that we don't burn up or freeze to death? Were you there, Job? Were you a part of that? Okay, great. How was its foundations poured? Who set the cornerstone while the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise? And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me, Job. I wrapped it in soft clouds. I tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen so it couldn't run loose. And I said, stay here. This is your place. It's kind of funny. It's kind of sarcastic. It's kind of biting. But let me just say this. When God employs language like this, and this is the message, so this is Eugene Peterson's kind of creativity here. When God employs language like this, it is never, ever tainted by sin. Human beings talk like this, and we go, come on, like that, this is a little ridiculous. That's pretty arrogant of you to say that. Yes, that's because human beings are sinful. There is no sin in what God is saying to Job. What God is saying to Job is for Job's good. And what is God saying to Job? (laughs) I am God and you are not. You are not there at creation. You are not there. When I calculated the precise distance that the earth and the sun needed to be away from one another, I told the seas where to go, Job. And this is just an interesting little aside. In the ancient Near East, the sea was regarded as a place of chaos and suspicion. In the Hebrew concept of the sea, that is a place of danger and death and destruction. And God is saying to Job, hey, that thing that everybody in your culture is afraid of, I'm in charge. I told it where to go. I put it to bed. I love the imagery of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap the sea up in clouds and I'm just going to put it where it belongs, right? That is power. But once again, this is not human power. This is not God throwing a bunch of fireworks up in the air to to please or to pleasure others. No, this is God demonstrating verbally to Job, Job, you don't get it. You don't get it. And then Job starts backpedaling. He starts backing off. Job, God continues this conversation in chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? That last phrase, that last two words, the answers, is very key. I want you to write that down if you're taking notes. God says to Job, look, your criticism is not going to hurt my feelings. 
And I'm waiting for you to put some answers out there, smart guy. If you know so much, tell me why this suffering is happening to you. And for whatever reason, and I think I know why, that phrase, the answers, is the key to the light bulb turning on for Job. Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. I am nothing. This is a huge shift from where we were a moment ago. Hey, I'm a prince. I'm appealing to the king. No more. He has dropped that. That is not his argument anymore. This is the moment that I realized that I told the emergency room doctor to go away. <laughs> this is the moment in Arrested Development when the character says, I made a huge mistake. This is the moment when things shift for Job. He confesses, he says to God, I am nothing, I agree with you, and how could I possibly find the answers? That's all I wanted, and I was wrong. Job actually, he says he wants the answers. And what God is trying to help him see is how disappointing that will be. Because the answers have become an idol. What do you actually want with your life, with your family, with your parenting, with your career, with your retirement? What do you actually want? If you want something, anything, power, respect, love, attention, if you want it more than the God who authored it, you're out of line. And I'm out of line too, because we have made an idol. Job's idol, he said it multiple times, it's the answer. He wants the answer. God, why is this happening to me? And I have heard people say this to me countless times in pastoral conversations. If I just knew why I was suffering, if I just knew why this person I love died, if I just knew why I got fired from my job, I could bear it. I could get through this suffering. And I, what I try to say in those conversations is I actually don't think that would help you that much. We tell ourselves that it would help us to know the reason. This is the burden of meaning that we've talked about. There is a burden laid on Job to try to understand why, but what is controlling him now is trying to figure out why. He is on a mad hunt for the answer. He is Captain Ahab, and he's going to get that white whale, and the white whale is the reason for his suffering. And what God is saying to him is, you're missing it, Job. It is not about me telling you why. Actually, the book of Job, God never tells Job why he suffered. Doesn't tell him why. And for a lot of people, they, would, they hear that and they go, I don't want to see that movie. I want it to be wrapped up. You know, I want Captain America to pick up Thor's hammer and I want him to snap and I want Thanos to turn to dust. Like, that's how it should end. But that's not how God sees it. Church, what do you actually want? Do you want an answer to why you've suffered throughout the pandemic? Those are, it's reasonable to want that. But how much power have you given to that? How much focus have you put on that? If I only, how would you finish that phrase? Because you're given that a lot of power. If I only had more money. Well, 
Do you really want money or do you really want power? Do you want the freedom to not have to worry about buying things? If I only had more time. I hear that a lot in our community, and I get that. I say that too. But you know what that actually means? That means I want more control. I want more control. And God has just finished rebuking Job, saying, no, Job, you don't have this control. You don't. What do you actually want, church? Do you want to be in the majestic presence of Almighty God? And to let that be enough. Do you want to worship Him wholeheartedly? Do you want to see Him in the Scripture and be moved in your spirit? Do you want to be a part of His rescue mission to save the whole world? Name Elizabeth Elliot who is a missionary to South America, to the tribes in the Amazon River. And she's an incredible story. I would encourage you to look her up online. It's, it's remarkable. She's almost like a modern-day Job. She and her husband, Jim, went to minister to and witness to these tribes to, to bring the Bible to them. They felt called by God to do this. And they lost everything. They went in the 1950s, 1960s, and they wrote everything out on paper as they tried to translate the Bible, and they started to make progress, and they developed friendships with people in the tribe. And then a flood came and wiped out everything. All their notes, all their translations, everything was gone. And then in a horrible act of violence, a number of men from the translation group were killed, including Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim. And Elizabeth Elliot has since written majestically about suffering and about grief, but primarily what caught my eye this week is a quote that I want to share with you guys about why this is so dangerous for us, why we are playing with fire when we say to God, God, I want this, and God says to us, no, you actually want this, and you can't get it except through me. Elizabeth Elliot said this, God is God. I dethrone him in my heart. If I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. This woman lost everything. And people would come to her and they would say, aren't you mad at God? Aren't you disappointed with God? And she would say, sure, I'm disappointed and I'm mad. But God is God. And I am not. And I will not dethrone him because he didn't do it like I said or thought he should. That's what this is really after. Job thought God would come to him and say, Job, let me show you why this is happening. Let me get you out of it. No. Because then you want the answer more than you want God. Tim Keller summarizes it this way. He says, the idol was a God who always acted the way we thought he should. How have you scripted out God's plan for yourself, church? How have you told God, God, you're going to do it this way. I, I know you will do it, and you will do it this way. In an educated, knowledge worker type society like we have here on the east side, I think this is a huge challenge, a tremendous challenge to the faithful people of God on the east side. Is we tell God, God, if you don't do it this way, then, then I'm not going to listen to you. I have felt that in ministry. I have felt that since I got here in 2015. I have felt this sense of, I've worked hard to get to where I am. I've gone to seminary. I completed my ordination. I did the stuff, God. So why is ministry hard? Why? 
What am I doing wrong? Why is it so challenging? Why this awful pandemic? Why did it fracture our community? Why did it drive so many people from the church? And God just looks at me and says like, are you going to let me sit on the throne or not? Because when I say to God, I need answers, God says, no, you don't. You need me. What answers have you demanded of God for your suffering, for the suffering of someone you love, for a question, why did this happen to me? Why did I lose somebody I loved? Why are my kids struggling? Why did I go through this horrible divorce? Why? And God can handle us asking him why, but we must never elevate that above who God is and his love and his grace. Because otherwise, as Elizabeth Elliot said, we dethrone him. And that is a chilling thought. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that throne is taken. And it is not yours to take back. So we're going to take an opportunity and respond now to what we've heard this morning through two means. We're going to have some time to be silent, and we're going to have some time to reflect. So if someone could close the door in the back, this is for silence sake, not to lock us in here. We're going to take just a few moments and reflect silently. I'll keep an eye on our time. And then there are cards and pens at the two back tables. And I'm going to lead us through a time of guided confession where we're going to do our best to name the things that we have put ahead of God, the ways that we have tried to dethrone God. And that may be hard. Maybe you've never practiced confession before. Maybe this is uncomfortable. I'm not going to ask you to read your card or share it with anybody. This is for your personal reflection. But we're going to begin with a time of silence. And so uh, in these next few minutes, I just want to invite you to sit quietly before the Lord. It may be really uncomfortable because I know we don't have a silent society. But I would invite you just to relish this time in this beautiful space. Consider the cross of Christ. Consider where you have tried to dethrone God. And then in a few moments, I'll gather us together for some guided confession. Let me pray for us as we begin our time in silence. Jesus, what a journey you've taken us on through the book of Job. And as we consider this challenging text today and this idea that we have dethroned you, that we have tried to tell you what to do, oh man, it was a weighty topic for me to consider this week and to ask these friends to consider it in such a short time. It's, it's, it's way too limited. But there's no limitation on your power to speak to your people. So would you speak to each heart gathered in this room? Would you speak to each heart online? And in these silent moments, Lord, just come to us. May our hearts and minds be centered and focused on you. And then as we come to confession in just a little while, hear our confession. Prepare us now through these silent moments, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Church, I invite you to be silent with me for just a few moments.
to a time of confession. And so if you need to have a pen or a card, Megan is kind enough to take those around. If you'd like one, please just let her know. And what I'm gonna invite you to do, this is just for you only. We're not picking these up. These are not gonna be seen by anyone. I'm just gonna guide us through a couple of different prompts as we pray, and prayer can be written as well. So in a moment, uh, once everyone has a piece of paper, uh, I'll invite us to just go through a couple different guided points of confession. in your journal or just anywhere you have, but we wanted to provide this if you needed it. Okay, thank you. All right, let's join our hearts together in prayer. Jesus, this is your time, and in response to your word, we want to surrender these next couple of minutes in a posture of confession. Thank you for the silence, and we pray as we begin for just a moment to write down anything that you may have spoken to us or nudged us to consider in the silence. So, Lord, capture our thoughts from the silence in, in these next few moments. moment, this reality that is so clear from the text, that you are God and we are not. God is God and I am not. It is a theme that your scripture points to powerfully and was summarized so beautifully by Elizabeth Elliot's quote, so help us to consider that for just a moment. You are God. Consider your power and your grace and your majesty, God. In these next few moments, inspire us to think of ways that we have seen you be powerful in our lives. How have we seen your power? we want to confess how we have tried to take power back from you. We've tried to sit on the throne of our own hearts. We've told you through our words and our gestures, we don't need you. We got this. Forgive us. And as we write down the ways that we have done that, Lord, hear our confession.
Father God, your rightful place is on the throne of our hearts. And so in these next few moments, hear us as we write or as we think in the silence, as we pray to you quietly. Hear us as we ask you to come and sit on the throne once again. Lord, I've tried to write my own script for my work, for ministry, for our journey as a church, and I am so sorry that I have tried to do that without you. There are always moments that just are so shot through with sin, and I'm sorry. Lord, would you chart a new course? Would you write a new story? And so for each of us, as we are in these moments of reflection, would you, using our own words, would you inspire us to ask you specifically for where we most need your help and your power? Hear us as we pray. prepare to conclude our time in prayer, we offer to you, Lord, our need for Jesus, for his gospel to awaken our hearts yet again, for the truth of his resurrection to set us free from trying to make ourselves better by behavior modification, by trying to clean ourselves up. Instead, Lord, with open hands, we ask for the imagination of Jesus, the creativity and the power of Jesus in each of our lives to inspire us in the week ahead. Lord, what dreams do you have for us? We want to hear from you. Would you please speak through your Holy Spirit? God, thank you for being good to us with this time. We pray that we would respond to your grace now as we prepare to conclude our time in worship. Thank you for speaking to us. We ask in your great name. Amen. Friends, something we haven't done for a little while, but that I'd like to make room for is if you felt a nudge from the Holy Spirit, if you believe God has shared something with you that would be of benefit to the church for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to hear, uh, take some courage, but if you would like to share anything that you believe God may have spoken to you in our silence or in our reflection time, uh, I would just give the floor over to that for uh, a moment. So has anyone heard from the Lord in a way that would bless and serve his church today? Uh, so something that I've been struggling with lately uh, is just like relying on my own ability uh, and believing that, you know, it's going to be my intellect or my hard work or uh, whatever I can do it. And, and even speaking in the like, oh, it's going to be fine because you're going to be able to do it or I can take care of it. And so I, I think for me, I really want to reflect on 
how can I, instead of relying on myself, be more reliant on God? notes very directly from the sermon, but I uh, am just going to be reflecting this week on just the importance of what it means to respect God, um, because he is a different person than me, um, just like my husband is a different person than me, um, like kind of looking at it that way. I think when we come to this agreement of God living inside of us, uh, I think for me, I often just assume like everything is of God because it's something I feel or think or believe. And so um, just kind of this re-engagement with the importance of yielding to him and not assume that we are aligned at all times. We want to be listening. So thank you for listening and for responding. Church, I invite you to stand. As we prepare to be sent forth to pick up kids and go to the store and enjoy this beautiful day, uh, we are going to be sent forth through Jesus for the mission of Jesus in the power of Jesus. And to do so first, we need to pray together and pray for our world. So please join me in a moment of prayer. Gracious God, we come uh, to you today having uh, heard your word, having uh, had the opportunity to sing and to bless your name in song, and to pray together, and to reflect, we're grateful. All of these things are your gifts, God, and as you promise us in Psalm 145, you open your hand and you satisfy the desires of all things. And maybe we didn't know how we needed to experience that this morning, but we pray, God, that in the time that we've had together, that you've been glorified, and that the aching and longing of our heart to encounter Jesus, that that has been met. Our world is aching and longing for your healing, Lord. It, uh, it, it really caught me this week as I read about the unfolding situation in Ukraine and Russia, uh, just what a, what a prospect there is right now of war, of, of terrible conflict between nations. And your kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Your kingdom is a kingdom of justice. And when we uh, see these things happening in our world that are so far removed from any power we may have, we must turn to you and say, Lord, in your mercy and your power, would you bring peace? Would you bring peace between Russia and Ukraine and the United States and all the many other countries involved in this dialogue? May it continue to be a dialogue. May it not descend into chaos and violence. Instead, may the peace of Jesus just pervade these discussions between leaders, Lord. May there be a peaceful resolution. Or any nation uh, marked by violence or torn apart by war. And your sovereignty just rests upon this situation and bring your peace. The many needs in our community, we think, especially as we mentioned earlier of our schools, we're so grateful to be linked with our friends at Dunlap and our friend, Mr. Green, and we pray your blessing on his ministry there as he follows you and as he serves kids and families in that incredibly diverse part of our city. And we also desire to be of service to the schools right here. 
in Kirkland and Bothell and Kenmore and Woodenville and Bellevue and all the places that we call home, we do want to see the light of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus break forth. And the schools are places where that can happen. So often in our society, there's this split, this dichotomy, oh, you know, don't bring the things of faith in here. Well, we desire, God, for the kingdom to be made real. And more and more, we pray for opportunities to do that as kids are mentored through our tween team ministry, as we bless and serve kids in different schools all over our city, as we partner in relationship, in friendship with people like Rogers Green and people like Bryn Nielsen and so many others who faithfully serve in our schools, even during these dark days and these difficult times of the pandemic. Thank you for their faithfulness and countless others, and we pray your blessing on our schools. May they be places of peace of restoration, of hope, of growth, and learning. And may we as your church uh, come around schools and teachers and families and kids on the margins and, and bring a greater vision of your kingdom into fullness there. We can't script that, Lord. So when opportunities arise, help us to meet those opportunities and help us to continue to be in the ready position to step into service unto you. We give the rest of our week to you. We know that there is much ahead that we cannot see. And so we ask, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you gift us with a vision for the week ahead, for the people that we'll see, our colleagues, our coworkers, friends, neighbors. May each person have an opportunity to encounter the, the compassion and love and grace and justice of Jesus through each of us. We cannot do this alone. So Holy Spirit, come, fill us here in this room, fill everybody who's online with a sense of your fresh power and movement for what is ahead. We love you and we give the rest of this day to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.